Hi, this is Leo Sarah, and you're listening to Today World. I'm standing here alone with you, wondering what it is that I'm supposed to do. And there you are with the love light in your eyes. Your bridges are burned down, your arms are open wide. In 1980. At age 10, I bought my very first LP record, Living in a Fantasy by Leo Sayer. I listened to it constantly. <laughs> 20 years later, I bought it on CD, and today it's always on my iPod, as is his latest album, Don't Wait Until Tomorrow. Leo's had several number one hits around the world. He's won a Grammy. Three of his singles have gone gold in the United States. And this morning, he's joining me from the city. He now. Calls home, Sydney, Australia, Mr. Leo Sayer. It's an honour, sir. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here as well, mate. <laughs> mate,、um, I got to tell you, living in a fantasy. I mean, we'll talk about the new album, and, and、uh, I,、yes. want, I want to go back over the career. But I got to tell you, mate, living in a fantasy. I cannot begin <laughs> to tell you how many discussions I've had with people over the years about what an unrecognised classic that album is. Really, really. Well, it, it's, it's funny because I think by that time in my career、um, with Fantasy,、um, yeah, that was a kind of rebirth album for me because I'd already you know, been around a fair amount of time, had you know, a lot of success with, let's call it the British period of albums, which was Silverbird, Just a Boy, you know,、uh, 1973, 1974. Um, and, and 1975 with, with another year. And then, you know, went to the American period, which was three albums with Richard Perry, with Endless Flight,、uh, the one called Leo Sayre, and then Thunder in My Heart.、Um, and at that time, you know, sometimes you expect results immediately because that's what happens with the very first three albums. And the results were kind of like sporadic and not always reliable. And I think with Thunder in My Heart, which was an album that, you know, I felt was the absolute peak of me in 1977,、um, and, uh, or 1978 rather, sorry,、um, I didn't really know where to go after that. So、mm. I did an album with David Courtney called Here,、um, and it just felt like everything was,、oh、God, what do, what do I have to do to get another hit? And then, then when I met Alan Tarney and we did Living in a Fantasy, it was like, oh, well, look, tried everything else, let's try this. And it's amazing to think that that suddenly became a hit record again. And yeah, and like yourself, it brought a lot of people in. I'm glad that you mentioned Richard Perry and, and Alan Tarney and David Courtney because one of the things that's always struck me with musicians that I love is the impact that a good producer has on the sound of an artist. And obviously, Alan Tarney had done a lot of great work in the 70s and the early 80s with people like、uh, Cliff Richard and yourself and Bonnie、yeah. Tyler. And you know, listening to that album, I can almost hear his signature sound and the way he was able to produce this great sort of middle of the road pop rock、uh, stuff. And it had like a, a harder edge to it, I thought, that album than some of the stuff you'd done with Well,、Richard、I think、Perry. that a lot of that comes from me because, you know, a lot of the people that Alan had worked with,、um, well, all of them really, he hadn't really co written with anybody. I think Barbara Dixon, the English singer, was the only person he'd attempted to kind of like. You know, really sort of get involved in any of the writing with. And from the start, you know,、uh, with me,、um, well, the first two tracks we recorded、uh, um, once in a while and, and, and let me know were, were kind of two of his tracks. But,、uh, you know, I was attracted to them because I saw something in there that was a kind of like a, 
a little bit of a, uh, should we say, more mysterious kind of um, darker side that I could put into the lyric. With all my, my sort of the fragility of my vocal, it kind of suggests something deeper or a deeper meaning going on. So anyway, we started writing straight away and we, we managed to explore something that is kind of, I think, a little bit, you know, a bit more interesting than dare I say, some of the other records that he made. Oh, God, I'll get myself in trouble now because I, I loved We Don't Talk Anymore. And I love the technique that he had. But I, I always want something that's unique, and that's what I look for in working with anybody. So, you know, working with Alan as the producer, and, of course, let's not forget, he just about plays everything on these records as well. Um, you know, I really it, it's like you go into a relationship with someone. It's almost like falling in love. You, you explore everything about the other person, and likewise, he explores everything about me. So it was, it was one of those relationships where we really, we really hit it off, and we found that we both had qualities that we could bring to the party. Um, my sort of, like, you know, Bob Dylan-ness in, in, in trying to sort of bring the story and the song out, and, 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 and his innate kind of, I, I don't know, I think of him as the second Brian Wilson. That's how I have him down, because he's one of those guys that just has so much music within him, and it's all a mystery, but you've got to drag it out, you know? It's fascinating that you say that, because, you know, the the relationship I've, I think, with uh, Garth Porter, who most Australians will know, I guess, from his time with Sherbet in, yes. in, the, in the 70s in Australia, on this new album, Don't Wait Until Tomorrow. I mean, it's, I've got to say, mate, it, it is an absolute revelation, not just in the way that the lyrics of these songs come out because of the, the production, that very sort of laid back jazzy feel with the production, but your vocals, I mean, I've been listening to you for, for, you know, 30, yeah, well, it's, 30 it, years. It's a result of, yeah, it's the result of exploring things that, that, that comes out, you know, I think I'm a, I'm a good interpreter, but, but I chiefly kind of, I'm at my, I'm at my best when I'm singing my own lyrics or, or at least if I do cover songs i really have to believe in that song and i have to be able to live it as if um as if as if i wrote it you know uh, i must admit i have a songwriter's mentality and in interpretation and um and that's what i strive to do i i don't analyze it too much but i know that i have to be able to find some kind of uh, you know individual recognition some passion um for the words that I'm singing, or else, you know, it, it just doesn't happen, or else it's a bit flat. But, um, but it, it, I seem to be able to extricate out of a song that last little bit of meaning and quality uh, that, that kind of, should we say, makes those, makes some of those interpretations. I think of When I Need You, because, I mean, everybody's done that, from Celine Dion to Luther Vandross to Rod Stewart to... Um, well, you know, Engelbert Humperdinck. I mean, they've all sung great versions of that song. And the original version by Alan, by, sorry, by Albert Hammond himself, you know, is, is stunning. But they all seem to look on me being the quintessential version. And I think it's probably because as an interpreter, I tend to delve into the material and go that little bit further than everybody else, you know, does with it. Almost the point of... Of, of, of squeezing it dry. <laughs> and I know now that's my ability. Well, speaking of interpreting, I mean, I only discovered this morning, I can't believe it, more than I can say. I've been listening to that song for 30 years. I just found out this morning that that was a cover version. I always, and it was funny because that's the one song that really doesn't fit, I think, on Living in a Fantasy. It's, you know, the rest of the oh, songs. Oh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you why. 
And I'll tell you a story behind that. I mean, basically, we'd finished the album when we recorded more than I can... We actually efficient in the studio, Alan Tani and I, but we realized that we'd, we'd, we had uh, another day um, booked in the studio, and that was like gold dust to us because the, the, the hardest thing about making records is being able to afford to make them. Uh, other, anything else is easy because, you know, whatever your budget is, you'll always spend much more money than you have. And technically, making records... Look, I make music at home, and if I could release this just like I make it, then the world would be a fine place. But unfortunately, you do need producers and engineers, and you need the environment. You need real players to make it kind of work, and it's just very expensive. So anyway, we have a day left, and it's all booked and paid for. The record company's already paid for it. We think, what the hell are we going to do? And we watched the TV. We couldn't work out what to do. We thought, well, it'd be nice to do a cover the Greatest of Bobby V came on, and it was a song written by Jerry Allison and Sonny Curtis that Bobby was singing on the TV that made us go, hey, I love that song. We both heard it in 1960 when we were kids, and for some reason it, it stayed in, in our mentality. I think it was 1964 or something like that. It was originally uh, recorded by Bobby V. So we, we both looked at each other and just said, let's do that. So that was a way of using up our studio time. And, and we just thought, well, to hell with it. There's nothing, to, you know, nothing lost. We've got the album's all finished anyway. If this is any good, then we'll make it into a B-side, you know. And we were just doing it in a kind of throwaway fashion. And when midnight came around and we were just putting the last touches on it, in fact, we went over on time with it, really. We always were at the time because if you got if you if you're in there then i'll kick you out <laughs> but we um we basically finished it up and we looked at each other and thought hey that isn't bad you know maybe we could do a whole maybe the, we could do an whole album on that theme you know so we delivered the album anyway and we delivered this extra track and everybody just went uh, blown over by the extra track for some reason it's, it's just got this beautiful simplicity to it it's just the most fantastic most fantastic beautiful simple simple song I mean, when I was a teenager listening to that, that was the quintessential love song for me during my teenage years. It, it really worked. And, <laughs> but the older I get, the rest of the album I really appreciate. Let's, let's talk about vocals. I mean, I've been telling everyone that Don't Wait Until Tomorrow is your Sinatra album. Does that, uh, did you have Sinatra in mind at all when you put that together? No, not really. It was just kind of, it was just, you know, it's just another way of using the voice. Um and and I must admit, it was, you know, I, I would always kind of get into a song. And as as I say, to extricate that real passion, sometimes you're not going to sing quietly. You're going to sing with a lot of force to kind of like really get to the edge of the song and, and put some power in there and maybe, you know, showcase the voice a little bit more. But I was singing quietly um, backstage at Countdown and and... I, I wasn't really thinking, you know, what I was doing. And, and, and Garth came up to me and said, that's the voice. That's the voice I want to record. So a lot of the impetus of singing smoothly, almost Sinatra-esque, um, you know, came from Garth. He just liked that voice. And I suppose, you know, that's one of the ways that I sing. I, I was always kind of like um, a bit of a backstage crooner. So I'd, I'd always be a crooner in the background. Um, and a lot of the songs, I, I use that kind of, you know, a lot of the recording. Um, in the past, I've used 
the smoothness of that voice to get there. But um, but to sing really quietly on this album was was a revelation to me as much as it is for anybody else. And and to find that you've got that voice, you know, because um, I'm always used to projecting, as yeah. well, you know, really throwing it out there. And, and and to find that I had that voice and that it could be smooth and that it could be recorded in that way was kind of like as a much a revelation to me as it has been for everybody else. And it, it kind of interpret you know, that kind of interpretation, that real laid back smooth thing, allows you to find subtleties in lots of little ways. You know, it's uh it, it kind of felt sexy to me. It is sexy. You know, I just come back from two weeks in France and that was the only album that I had on my MacBook. And so because uh, ah. I needed music to play in the hotel room, I had it running constantly when I was uh, in France. And it, it has this beautiful, when I said my Sinatra, your Sinatra album, I kind of, it's the intimacy, I think, in this album. Usually there's so much yeah, energy yeah, in that, your records. Well, that's what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to kind of, you know, this idea of pairing everything there. We call it a naked album. Um, the, the, would you believe the first the first title that Garth and I came up when we were thinking, when we started the album was Horizontal Dancing. <laughs> because in in comparison to all the you know the when I the, the, sorry the thunder in my heart and you make me feel like dancing a full pelt you know sort of you know a dance thing this is kind of like yeah a number to be taken this is an album to be taken lying down <laughs> <laughs> you you have one of the most versatile voices I I think in in rock I mean from- yeah I don't really think about it you know it just happens like that it's it's um I'm kind of lucky really. I think I'm 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 double lucky because you know I started singing when I was a young kid um with a very very good you know um priest who was a singer who really took me under his wing and taught me how to project the voice and I I learned that it doesn't just come from the, st- the throat um it doesn't just come from the chest or the stomach it comes from the whole body and and that's how I sing and I and I think that you know some of my heroes sing like that you know uh, people like Bobby Blue Bland and uh, I don't know some some of the greatest singers. You know they sing with their whole body, and that's what makes them very very special. You know um, I don't know of many contemporary singers who do that, but certainly Celine Dion um, sings with every single ounce of everything she's got. You know, and and maybe someone like Mariah Carey, you know, does as well. So uh, Aretha Franklin definitely. So you know these. Otis Redding, you know, these these are the singers that just give you all of themselves. You know, they the whole body is there to support the voice. So you find myriad different ways of kind of um, level and interpretation. But the other thing is that um, I used to be a mimic when I was a kid, and I used to, like, copy loads of vocalists and, um, you know, do my version of them. So I kind of learned... I learned a lot of my technique by listening to a, a, a wide variety of singers and trying to kind of emulate them, you know. As you get older, are you finding your voice is changing at all? Sorry? As you get older, is your voice changing at all? Are you, are you finding... Um, yeah, it's deeper, it's richer, um, it's, it's smokier. Uh, but that naturally happens. Uh, I mean, one of the... I don't know if you've heard Joni Mitchell of late, but... You know, she used to have this really, really sweet kind of fragile, beautiful intonation. And then her voice kind of went a little bit, well, her material went a bit jazzy. So she was able to kind of, you know, come some depth to her range. And now she's just got the sexiest, smokiest, but almost authoritative voice. And I think that she is, um, 
I think we're kind of the same age as well. And I think that, um, I think that that's, uh, you know, the only person that I can think whose voice has developed in, you know, in this really interesting way, you know, um, and she's, she's, she's actually, rather than fought it, she's embraced it and gone with it. And, um, you know, that's what happens with me. All my timing is still there. All my, all my, uh, energy and my soul is still there, but, but, I found that the you know that that kind of time has has added a few kind of a few extra things to me you know and so I've embraced those and 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 run towards those rather than rather than kind of just fought them off and tried to keep the same vocal all the time you know yeah do you consider yourself primarily a a vocalist or a songwriter I'm a songwriter I just happen to happen to have this voice I mean I'm very lucky but uh, and and you know I'm a songwriter before an entertainer before a singer I mean to me writing and creating the song is you know it's for me my personally the biggest achievement tell me tell me about the process for you in in writing a song where where does it start usually oh it's it's different every time it usually i mean i carry a notebook around with me with a million sort of jotted um ideas and and and, and you know so so sometimes basically it's coming from the words that i put down into that notebook and there's something that you know uh I, 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 it's kind of undeniable, but I, I wrote a, I wrote and recorded an album um, about four years ago called Voice in My Head mm, in, 1906, in 2003, 2004. And um, that really sort of was about that process. I mean, all of those songs came to me in a complete flash, rather like Orchard Road. They just came, you know, at moment of conception, the whole thing I could see in my head completely finished i heard the whole arrangement the whole uh the instrumentation um the order of the song the the, the tone the taste of the song you know everything was there and it was a blood but i i sought to kind of um to try and bring out what i'd heard in my head onto the record and uh, it, you know for, for me it worked i mean pretty much Every single one of those songs was recognizable to me right to the last moment of mixing. Um, I had to produce it myself because it wasn't anything that I could... If, if I'd have brought in anybody else to do it, they'd have twisted that idea, if you see what I mean. So it became a monstrous work. It took me about 160, 170 days to complete. But, um, but, uh, but I'm, I'm really proud of that record because that's how I hear myself. You don't play any musical instruments, though, do you? Well, I play. I, I hammer around on the keyboard, and I can, you know, and thank God for this world of, um, of, of 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 samples and Garage Band and Logic and Pro Tools and all those these great sort of toys that we work with, with virtual instruments and with keyboards. You know, you can basically almost do anything. <laughs> I mean, I love manipulating a sample. So if there's an acoustic guitar, I I, I know how to how to uh, how to put that down and represent a, an acoustic guitar. I mean. I, Actually, with voice in my head, I was—I actually did pretty fully fleshed-out demos with strings and everything. I did the whole bloody thing myself, and then went into the studio and played that to everybody, and we recreated that in the studio with the musicians, which was—it's um, uh, a task to do, but it was fantastic. And so, you know, all of the ideas that I heard in my my head, I would hear the lines, hear the bass lines, hear the guitar lines, hear the string lines, hear the piano lines, but I just needed someone better. And with more ability to play it. I mean, I, probably the fact that I'm 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 a dumb musician in a way. I'm I'm very very restricted. 
um, actually helps. It, it frees me up to be able to think of possibilities. So I, I'm, I'm very blessed that I work with some of the greatest musicians in the world. You know, um, in America, people like Jeff Beccaro on the drums, Steve Gadd on the drums, and, you know, some of the great guitarists like Steve Luther and Jeff Beck and... You know, I, geez, I've I've just been very very lucky that uh, I've had some of the most wonderful musicians in the world, you know, to to interpret my ideas. Don't wait until tomorrow. It may come too late. Wait until tomorrow Only fools hesitate Take hold of every chance they offer to What's been the, the greatest thing that you've got out of your music career? Oh, I think I think just that it creates a, a wonderful um, a wonderful life in a way um, for somebody because um, communication by music, you know, opens so many doors. Um, I suppose. I'm, I mean, I wish I could use it for my love life. <laughs> well, I actually, <laughs> I actually read somewhere that you said the greatest thing uh, that what pop music's all about is about getting laid and seeing the world. It gets you to see the world, yeah, and also, you know, when you start out, it gets you laid as well. <laughs> so all of those things are good. Go. I mean, everybody would like to be a pop star um, in that way. And, and unfortunately, there are too many wannabes these days because um, you know, everybody can be a pop star since Australian Idol and American Idol and all those kind of things. Um, it seems to be. Um, but, but, um, and then you've got actors and actresses making albums, and I don't know why they bother, really, but that's what they want to do. Uh, everybody wants to be what we are. Um, so, so it's, it, it, it must be a good life, but also, you know, seeing the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love being the artist in exile. It suits me as a songwriter now living in Australia. <laughs> I live so far away from what is essentially my maternal core. Um, and, and I love that because it keeps me on my toes and, and I find, you know, even on a gray day, like it is today and it's raining outside, Sydney is still still this fascinating city for me that I'm still learning, even after all these years. So environment, yeah, is important, and I think yeah, travel opens up you, you opens up the chance, you know, um, to, to to find the environment that's ideal for you and to be inspired by it. You know, so that's wonderful. What about the actual music business? Has it changed much since you got started? Oh, completely and utterly. I think that most of the you know, most of us, as it were, the guys that are, are of our generation and started the way that we started, you know, with record companies just kind of saying, oh, give us anything, you know. Um, now they want to tell you exactly what to do. So we we are working in spite of this industry. I mean, you know, you just have to kind of ignore it or fight it to exist. But the funny thing is, is how everything's come, come back around. You know, I mean... Um, in the in the 90s, I was so out of fashion, I couldn't get a bloody deal, you know. I, nobody wanted to release anything I was doing. Um, just because the very thing of Leo Sayer was out of fashion. You know, just because they've given you a chance before, why should we Why should we give you a chance before? I mean, we were written off, you know, all of us guys. And now it seems to be right back, you know. seems to be um, 
you know, record companies and, 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 and people in the business are tripping over themselves to kind of get involved with, uh, let's call them legacy artists like myself, you know? Do you think that's... Uh, because of what they, they need what we know. <laughs> I was going to say, do you think that's a backlash against the whole Australian Idol overproduced pop where they're actually looking for songwriters with some craft? Well, yes, in a way it is. In, um, that's a big statement, but I think that that you can, you can. It's very difficult because I'd like to think that a lot of the new artists coming in, you know, uh, um, have as much talent as, as 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 is needed. And certainly, there are guys like John Mayer, you know, who are just absolutely stunning, you know, who have all of those qualities, who really have that thing, you know, that magical thing, that individualism and that originality. Um, I think the guys from Coldplay and Radiohead definitely have that. They have as much um, individual talent and fire as is as is as, as is ever required. But at the same time, you know, we've got a lot of kind of very grey artists who basically are a marketing person's dream. But I don't see where the talent is. It's just a case of. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of artists as well who are kind of only echoes of somebody in the in the past. I mean, Michael Bublé is a great singer, but why does he have to be Sam Frank Sinatra? You know, Paul Weller is a is is a great artist, but why does he have to be? You know, why can't he do something more individual? I I always think, and anyway, and that's it. And why do the Oasis Oasis have to sound like the Beatles? <laughs> Sorry, it's just it just doesn't do it for me. You know. Uh, how, tell me about the DJ Mech remix of Thunder in My Heart, that which, which relaunched that as a major... Well, it's a weird one, because um, that kind of came around... It was, it was almost a, a... I mean, it was a surprise for me. Uh, it has to be said straight away that they couldn't have done it without my permission, because uh, I really physically own the original master. So the funny thing was that when it actually came out, they've had this great story about he doesn't even know the record's been made, you know? <laughs> and they had all this, all this kind of, um, well, this guy walked into a record store, found this record completely obscure, which was never a hit in the first place. I mean, a lot of that was just, you know, it was just BS, really. But, um, and, and, and uh, you know, wanted to be a party pooper on it all, but the, guy who, the guys who actually made it were not DJ Mech. Um, he was just the name on the label, but really, but the two guys who made it are, are real sort of, studio experts at doing this kind of thing because the original multi-track doesn't exist. So um, there was no chance to separate um, tracks on it. All that was there was the stereo master. So they went into the studio and filtered and filtered and filtered um, out, you know, various instruments, took the EQ, you know, extracted the vocal as it were, you know, from, from the track. And then, and then, you know, and, 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 with the strings that were there and a lot of the instruments, they kind of added a few instruments to it and added a groove, added a beat. I mean, listen, it was so cleverly done. And when they played it to me, first off, when, when, it, when it came to me, the offer to do it, you know, from DJ Mech and everybody loved, we're going to do a version. I mean, he didn't really sound to me like he knew what he was doing. I was thinking, this is going to be awful. But when it came in, it was like, how the hell did you do that? And what was really weird for me was that, you know, Mech had no track record of anything before. Mm. But when I actually kind of found out, yeah, that it was these guys, Bimbo Jones, they're called, in, in the UK, that had done loads of other remixes, like the Eric Prids, um, you know, um, uh, call on me, call on... You know, when I suddenly realised, oh, shit, that's why it sounds as good as it does. And it blew me away. It was just a knockout. 
I mean, there was a little, as I say, there's a lot of silly publicity in the UK uh, where it was pr principally targeted and, of course, became the number one. Um, and there was a lot of kind of like silly stuff about, you know, oh, he doesn't even know it's kind of coming out. The, the, the song was, the record was never, you know, hardly released before which is absolute lie because you know, it went to number five, the album in the in the charts. But, but the single, of course, wasn't a huge hit. But it was, but it was pretty much played to death by every DJ, you know. So it was out there um, in its in 1977. So it was kind of, um, yeah, it was kind of to see it live again. What kind of impact has it had on the awareness of your back catalogue, do you think, with this younger audience? Well, it doesn't really do very much, actually. That's the funny thing. Um, because, you know, most of the younger audience is only interested in the record that's thrust up in front of them. I mean, they'll probably think that, you know, Leo Sayer or Hot Chocolate or Mark <laughs> Bolan or Bob Marley only ever had one song. So that's the reality, you know. Confined to disco hell in the 70s forever, huh? Yeah, exactly. Like Steve Winwood with Valerie, you know, and with Call On Me. I mean, you know, I, I don't see that it's opened up Steve Winwood's career to a, a, a huge audience. He's still a very eclectic act. He's a great act, but, you know, just because of one song, um, it's not going to make everybody aware, you know. Mm. Tell me about uh, your perspective on things like iTunes and iPods and the internet on the music business. Are these good things or bad things or don't rate? Oh, listen, it's all good. It's all good. I mean, all of the spread of, 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 of music to kind of present itself to people and make itself more applicable and make itself more... I mean, now you've got, you know, iPods, you know, in cars and everything like that. I mean, listen, it's, it's, it's all good. I mean, I, as a record collector and as a record player, love and embrace all technology because it enables me to... Um, you know, to, to kind of uh, explore and find all that record. But, but, but you know, look, I'm, I'm downloading people like Chick Career and, um, and, and Weather Report and Joe Zavinal and Rare Motown Soul and everything. I'm, you know, none of us are going to use it the same way. And I think that um, musicians will use it in a different way than the general public does. Um, I just think that the music business sometimes should be just more open and more adaptable than it has been um, towards the new media. And um, really, they shot themselves in the foot by, uh, by trying to sort of block things and trying to protect things and going on and on about artists' rights. I mean, Jesus Christ, the rippers. I don't know why they're suddenly trying to sort of like be our lifesavers, because really, they don't do as much favours. You've had a bit of a mixed track record with uh, the financial side of the business, I believe? Yeah, yeah, it's, well, it's just, it's just managers, you know, I mean, I've, I've just been ripped off, it's nearly always been managers for me, it's not really been record companies, right. um, I can't really say that, um, but, you know, I, I, I just was in with the wrong people, or, or people have taken advantage, but that happens to artists, you know, that happens if you've got an artistic soul, if I was a bit more of a business soul, I think I'd have seen it coming, 
But look, I regret nothing at this moment because sometimes those moments of obscurity when you're not around, um, you know, become winning items, as it were, later on because people, you know, like yourself, come in with living in a fair. I say, God, I never knew that that was that. You know, so it's it's all there as long as the work is there to back it up. I read, I read as some, long as the breadth of the career is there, then it can always be rediscovered. I read uh, you quoted somewhere recently saying that you're grateful for not being rich and you're grateful for being ripped off. What did you mean by that? Well, no, just just exactly what I was saying in that answer. Sometimes it's a, it's a good thing to to have obscurity thrust on you <laughs> in that way because then it can be rediscovered. I mean, you know, uh, if I was at the top of my, my, my career, like, say, Cliff Richard or you 2 or Bob Dylan or those kind of guys that kind of never, never go away, do you know what I mean? Um, and then Thunder in My Heart came out, so it would have been, well, here's another track from Leo. Yeah, I like that one, yeah. It had just been another track. But no, it was, oh, my God, he was dead. We've rediscovered him. He's come from nowhere. Oh, my God, have you heard this guy? Wow. And there's still a little bit of that left to be done, you know, because there will be others. I swear that voice in my head, which um, to me is I'm so proud of, um, kind of doesn't mean very much out there at the moment. But that album will come back and people will, you know, embrace that and they'll, they'll... I know. I just know these things. It's the pattern of my life. And that's I'm, the... I'm one of those guys who turns up one day early for the wedding and <laughs> hangs around. Eventually, I'm there, you know, mate. I mean, that's, that's the story of my bloody life. Um, the Bee Gees, even. I mean, Barry Gibbs said, you know, God, you invented disco before it came around. And that was very nice, you know. Uh, what was he referring to? I, I reckon he did, actually. What, what, was he, <laughs> what was he referring to? A particular track? Well, he was, uh, you make me feel like dance. So that was, you know, because that, well, we the, did that when we did that track. Um, that was kind of before, you know, Straying Alive and all those tracks, and you know, um, it was kind of about, uh, you know, it, it was one of those kind of um, trailblazing tracks. I mean, we we were just fooling with something and got a groove and, you know, got it together in the studio. And I, I think when it came out, nobody knew what what had hit them. And then, you know, six months or a year later, every record was like that. You were like the white Michael Jackson back then. Yeah, I mean we were we were yeah, but we were ahead of Michael Jackson. We were ahead of ahead of uh, and we were ahead of uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band and all those bands, you know. Was that who was the oh, producer it, it on that was record? One of the first, Richard Perry. Oh, that was a Perry record. Wow. Yeah, yeah, out of the flight. Yeah, it was our first hit off that album, and um, and it was a jam session in the studio, you know, but. Just because me and a bunch of musicians in between takes were jamming down a, a couple of you know R and B songs that we'd heard, we were kind of started from that, you know, from from emulating or, or copying those or doing our rendition of those, and then uh, you know, so it grew. So you're, you should be known as Leo Sayer, the godfather of disco. Well, not really. It's only once. I mean, all, look, all of it. I mean, I, I wear many hats. <laughs> and rather like the other Gemini um, in the business, the guy that I really sort of think of as my hero is Bob Dylan. 
You know, you can't pin him down as to any one style, can you? No. You'd say one minute he's got an acoustic guitar in front of him and his times are changing, and then the next minute he's got the whole band and he's kind of, you know, almost going to shock you with like a Rolling Stone. And um, then the next minute, you know, he's coming up with something completely and utterly different. So, you know, I would, I would always, I like to, I like to be the unexpected artist, you know. Well, yeah. and um, I was going to say before that the, the, I think the quality of the songwriting is the thing that stands the test of time with with a mm. with a Dylan or with a Beatles, and I think that's true with your records as well. It's that quality of songwriting that that doesn't really age. I think the magic that comes out is, shall we say, it's kind of like a, uh, um, an iceberg, really. It's only... If you explore and put a hell of a lot of work into records and a hell of a lot of effort into the songwriting, the creating the things, to the vocal style, to the way you choose the instruments and the, you know, the tones that you pick and then you're going to end up with something that will last an incredibly long time. I mean, look at, you know, Davis and the Kinks with Waterloo Sunset. Look at um, ELO and some of their records, you know, and the way, you know, um, Jeff Lynn records and everything. You know, he mm. he makes something that is an indelible item, like John Lennon made with, with, with um, you know, Imagine. I mean, Imagine is just a piano, a vocal, a really a few sparse instruments. And yet, it's just this, every time you play it, there's something more to be gained from it. You know what I mean? Mm. You get something more out of it. It is absolute, you know, audio magic in every single, you know, you, you hang on every phrase. And, and that's, but that's because a lot of work and passion went into the creation of it. You know, you, you said before that you consider yourself primarily a songwriter, but... I think anyone who's seen you perform live will remember the energy. I think I last saw you live about uh, 10 or 12 years ago when you came out to Australia, and I was just blown away by the the energy <laughs> that came out on stage. Uh, how do you keep that up? Well, I just love what I do, and um, I don't know where all the energy comes from. I mean, it's ironic that my dad died from not being able to make adrenaline, and I have enough for a you know a whole busload of people. <laughs> and it, so, um, yeah, it's obvious that you're one of these people who actually loves getting up in front of an audience. Well, yeah, I think it's just because I'm so proud of what I've created uh, at the bottom line. I know that sounds simplistic, but I love the songs. And I mean, you know, um, in a way with David Courtney, what I wanted to do when I was first writing, you know, first writing was, was, was make a great stage act because I loved being on stage. That was really cool. I love the the interaction of the audience and and, um, and and the singer and the band. You know, it was just something absolutely magical. You felt like you could create something, but you needed the material. So, you know, we set out to write Long Tall Glasses and uh, songs like In My Life and The Show Must Go On, One Man Band, just to make a great stage act. It, 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 we wanted it to have all of the qualities, you know? And And that's something I've never given up on. I'm always kind of thinking, well... You know, I've got to create great material that I can sing on stage because if I can sing great material and I can use all my abilities to then, as it were, sell that material to the audience, then something magical is going to happen. And it frequently does. And I think the energy, you know, and the, the, the showmanship comes from the confidence 
confidence in having that material and seeing the effect that it has on people. And, and also the ability that it can move minds and bodies at the same time, which is really what pop music is all about. I, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I, I get the impression sometimes with pop music these days that it's really about making money. It's not really about having an artistic impact on the audience. But that's something... Well, that, you see, is that's, you, I think you've really put... I didn't want to say that, but that's really... The impetus of business... Um, you know, in the way that it's kind of influenced the music business is that it's really about, you know, it's become a very, it's become a very money-making affair. And that's what I fight all the time because I always think if you do good work, you're going to make money anyway because your songs are going to get played over and over. I mean, I think, you know, for like 10 minutes in a studio with Alan Tarney and we created Orchard Road. And I mean, the amount of airplay just that song gets all over the world. I mean... It's a massive hit in Belgium and, and Holland and Scandinavia, and you know, and nobody knows why. It's just got something that seems to, in, you know, encourage people to want to listen to it and play it and play it again. So sometimes, you know, you're very lucky that you put all those things in and you get something out. And I really don't understand why people make music with the. I don't know how they can go in and say, right, we're going to make money. I mean, I've I've actually sat down with a couple of pop songwriters in my time and I've got to say nothing's come out and and but I've gone in with them and they say right Leo let's write a hit and I can't do that I've never done that in my life you know it's like no I always go into the studio thinking let me do something I need to say or or something and I'm I'm never thinking of, of, of dollar bills you know you know, it's interesting if you look at some of the uh, some of your contemporaries that have been around since the late '60s or early '70s. If I think of uh, a Bowie or a Dylan or uh, a Lou Reed, who's one of my favourites, you can kind of chart over the course of their career where they have sort of not sold out, but but gone around the hit making track, and then when they've come back to, well, you know what, I'm just going to make a really good record. And I, I always wonder well, about that balance. It must be difficult to. Well, work that I, I think that every single one of those people you've, you've you've described there, and me, and everybody. Look, as much as we are serious about the art of communication, about great music, as much as we adore the Led Cohens and the. And, and 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 you know the Joni Mitchells mm. in, in, uh, of our business, um, and the Keith Jarretts on the outside, you know, um, like the jazz tinge or or the serious serious you know uh, the serious um, folk artists, you know, who are who are just compelled to do what they do, um, you know, great communicators. We all love the three minute pop song. Mm -hmm. You know, Bob Dylan made some great three minute pop songs. Um, you know, all of those people, we've all wanted to kind of make those great records. That's what was so magical about the Beatles. They were thinking men's or thinking persons um, artists at the same time as being, you know, cheap and trashy and throwaway. I mean, it's wonderful if you can do those things. There's a lot of magic that you can create. It's a mini movie, the three-minute pop songs. The seven-inch single is still God for me, you know. And if we can come up with something that, you know, every, when you, you can come up with something, that, you know, when you're walking down the street, you hear um, the road sweeper whistle. Um, you hear the person at the top of the bus humming. Um, that's what it's all about. Such a sad affair, standing here, waiting in the cold night air. But I've got to make this call, because my heart is breaking. 
I hear the pips drop a coin in the slot. Has it been that long? I thought you'd forgotten me. Well, I know it's getting late. For your money, what's the what's the greatest three minute pop song ever written? Really difficult, I think. Difficult choice. Um, God, good vibrations. The Beach Boys, which is stunning because it works on so many different levels. Um, you know, I don't know. Billy Jean, Michael Michael Jackson, because it's just so goddamn funky and clear, but tells me to something that's really clever. I don't know, like a Rolling Stone, Bob Dylan, just because when that came out. Like nothing anybody had ever heard before, um, you know, with the quint- quintessential pop song as art. I don't know. Maybe imagine, maybe uh, Waterloo Sunset. You know, maybe it's something as simple as Little Richard <laughs> or Chuck Berry. That you know, it, uh, uh, there's so many different ways to skin a cat. There really are, but it, it's it's all good. You know, I mean. Um, John Lee Hooker doing dimples is just so great as is as great as living thing by ELO. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What What about you? It's all different ways to get there, but that's what's so fantastic is genre that we're working in. It's it, it it can be done in so many different ways. You know, I mean um, Laurie Anderson can produce freaky record like Oh Superman, mm-hmm. Oh Mum and Dad, and that to me is just as fabulous as. Uh, Bob Dylan doing Blowing in the Wind. And she's Mrs. Lou Reed now, effectively. Mrs. Lou Reed, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's just, it's all there, you know, and it's all possible, and it's all wonderful. And the greatest crime of modern day is that radio stations won't play all of it at the same time. They, they've gone onto this thing called genre, which is such crap, because you can't tell people what to think. They'll cherry-pick what they want anyway. You know, I mean, if a guy's got loads of money, he's going to have a red car, a blue car, a yellow car, a white car, and a black car. He's not going to have them all in silver, is he? Well, yeah, but the kids are... Well, I mean, I've got, I don't know, 15,000 tracks, I think, on my iPod when I walk around. We're programming our own radio stations uh, these days. I think they are, and I think that this kind of choice is something that, for some strange reason the media and the music industry will not own up to. But that's just probably because they're lazy, because it's, it's hard work if you're going to embrace a catalogue or a, or a mentality like that, you know. I've talked to Glenn A. Baker and people about this, and, and, and they all agree with me that, you know, we, 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 are, we are really having to fight to open people's minds to what is possible in, 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 in music. Um, because because the industry would love to just sell the same old shit every day, you know. Well, and then it's... I mean, I have record companies out there, you know, that look after my stuff around the world, who really just hate it when I release something new, because every four years they reckon they can just sell the same old stuff again. <laughs> what, what? And that's mar- That's the world we're in. This is marketing. Yeah. Marketing is the enemy. I mean, all marketing people should be taken up and shot against a wall, as far as I'm concerned. You must... Because the magic of music is that you discover it yourself. You must have a, a huge audience of people, though, around the world who will buy anything that you make. I mean, and I consider myself one of those people. Do you have uh, a way of communicating with them every time you put out something new? To I don't think they, they should buy everything you make. I think they should really, really genuinely like it. 
Um, so that's where radio's a bit sad because, you know, I think that you should be able to hear Bob Dylan, Mariah Carey, um, you know, Jay-Z, um, Radiohead, uh, Joni Mitchell, all on the same program. And that's what's really sad, and I, I don't know any radio that does that. Mm, no, you're right. And, and I, you know, I think the radio... And then, is make, and then you really do find out of that because it's all relevant. We're all relevant, but we should be able to. We should, we should be. A, we should be allowed to live together, you know, rather than be separated. And I think this separation is what's killing a lot of the, 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 the a lot of the music business these days, you know. And then, you know, so you end up with, with. I mean, you know, if you take um, the Age or the or the Sydney Morning Herald or or the Rolling Stone or any of them. I mean, the records they review, most of them, look, 50% of them are just not worth listening to. But they're there because of market forces. So what's do you know the, what I mean? I do, I do. Out I, of all the records released over the year, the best ones never even get a fucking review. <laughs> so how, how do you discover new music, Leah? Oh, I cherry-pick and I search. And um, I'll listen to everybody. And, and I must admit, iTunes is great because you can listen to a few moments. Hopefully, they pick the right few moments of of every of every track. And uh, before you buy, you know, so at least there's that. I mean, I re- I don't understand why you can't go into a record company, pick a re- re- sorry a record store, pick a record off the shelf, and say, play that to me. Mm. I've never understood that. You know, I mean, are we supposed to buy these things because of the packaging? <laughs> How do we know? When do we get to hear them? Well, that's that's why iTunes is the number one record store on the planet, right? Well, that's where the, that's where the record industry really doesn't, you know, shoots itself in the foot. I mean, you know, and, and and it's really sad that now we all have to have websites where we play. Basically, we almost give away the songs um, on the websites, you know, because other than that, nobody's ever going to hear us. Mm. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that I look for in artists these days, increasingly, is a, a way to have a I guess, a, a relationship with the artist via the internet. I remember about 10 years ago, uh, I participated in an online web chat with Leonard Cohen where there was... Yeah, you know, fantastic. And it was. It, I mean, just to have this massive Q&A with Leonard Cohen, you know, probably, you know, one of the greatest songwriters ever. Oh, one of the great thinkers of life, you know, one of the great philosophers of life, a man who's seen it all and written it all. Um <laughs> Yeah, just a. I mean, he's a massive hero for me. I'm. I'm actually down for seeing his shows when he comes. And, and you know that kind of experience, and you know, in this to, to be able to chat to you is is an absolute thrill. And I think that we're moving into an era where the music is just part of the relationship that we want to have with the artists whose work we admire. Well, it's, it, I, th- I think it's interesting that we're talking here about. Um, about an enigma, really. It's something very enigmatic. Enigmatic. It's, it's, you know, as everything has become because of the internet, everything has become much more accessible. We find out. I mean, if if in the middle of the night, you know, I have a dream and I dream of the Sargasso Sea, um, and I don't know what that is, I'll get up in the morning, go straight to the computer, get onto Google, put Sargasso Sea, and in 10 minutes, I know everything that I never knew before. Mm-hmm. It's, well, in, in three minutes, I, I'll know everything I've never known before. Mm-hmm. All of my questions get answered. I mean, if I have an obscure artist like Jackie Levin from Scotland and I want to know more about him, 
God, I can find out the whole lot. I can hear every single piece of his material, and I can explore uh, uh, explore him and and become a, a Jackie Levin fanatic. You know, uh, uh, I am. Um, and and but but the 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 enigma about it all is that radio, the media, the newspapers, the magazines that. Oh God! There's so many of them, and there's so much of it. There's so much of it. it. Doesn't even mention Jackie Levin. So I like the fact that you know we can discover things that are very personal, that dictate our taste, and very much describe us. And the internet is the conduit for doing that. It's actually it's it doesn't turn us into nerds, but it actually opens our vistas so much. It's so exciting for that. But it is unfortunately a dichotomy because you know. Um, there are still people there who we have all this choice, you know, right at our right at our fingertips. We have the choice to design our lives. To if you want everything in orange, you can get everything in orange. But still, somebody out there chooses to think that we're going to actually listen to them, <laughs> tell us what to think, and it's it's just really strange to me. It doesn't seem to have moved at the times. Yeah, the editor-in-chief of Wired magazine, Chris Anderson, wrote a great book about that a couple of years ago called The Long Tail. And this this whole uh, uh, phenomenon now where, thanks to the internet, we can explore these niche interests that make us individuals and we're not, you know, it's not just the 20 records that are in the record store that you have to choose from. Yeah. Well, I think I I think that choice is the the natural enemy of, of... marketing because you know when we drive down the street you know the billboards that have been put up there have been chosen to kind of come to us um you know the 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 advertising that we see in magazine has been chosen but it hasn't been chosen by us you see so the internet is the last bastion of choice it's the upper floor of the library the reference library which i used to think was absolutely that was my church when i was a kid i used to go to the reference library and find a book and look up something, have a subject every day to look at and research myself. It was choice. And, you know, that's what's exciting. For someone who grew up self-educating himself, which is what I did, you know, this is a great age to be in. You're right. It's very exciting. Now, listen, you're uh, touring later on in the year for the new album. Is this going to be a a laid-back kind of arrangement? Well, we're just looking at it all at the minute. I'm I'm working on um, some of the arrangements. We're gonna I'm gonna cover some interesting songs in the show as well. Um, it's a whole new show. Um, there's gonna be 16 strings on stage and wow. uh, a lot of very individual musicians who like percussion and some guys gonna be playing classical guitar and there's gonna be clarinets um, player who also plays sax and 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 flute and. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a, you know a good old steam piano, a big big uh, a big grand piano, and um, uh, very delicate backing vocals, and you know the percussionist plays tablas and things like that. So it's going to be a whole different show. It's not going to be um, like you know the rock shows I've done before. So it's it's an interesting adventure. Um, I wouldn't say that. It's going to be the only way that I'll perform from now on, but it's it's going to be a whole different thing. Also, it's going to be very quiet on stage because we want to bring out the best of the instruments. So it's going to be very laid back, very intimate, very pared down. But at the end of the day, it's still a big sound. It's going to be very rich. Well, I can't wait to see it. It sounds fantastic. And, and apart from that, what's next for you? What, what do you see yourself doing uh, in the future for uh, around your, your well, songwriting? Well, I'm, I'm 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 thinking I'm thinking of a few more ideas, and I've I've got a I've got a book that I'm working on on the way as well 
um, which is a kind of a fiction, um, but it's a very interesting story because it's rather like an alter ego character of myself. So I'm working on that at the moment as well. Um, and, you know, music-wise, I've, I've got a bunch of songs that are coming together at the minute which sound like nothing I've, I've ever done before. Um, and, and, and I wouldn't say that they're in any one particular genre, but they're very interesting. They're, they're using a lot of uh, really pure instruments uh, for the sake of, uh, you know, there's a didgeridoo and there's, and there's Tibetan bells in there somewhere. So I, I don't know, a bit of world music is, is influencing me at the, at the minute as well, you know. Fantastic. Well, mate, uh, thank you very much for coming out chatting. It's been terrific. Yeah, it's all possible. That's, that's all I'd say to everybody. I, I, everything that you dream is possible. If you imagine it, you can make it so. That's the age we're in. So it's a very exciting time for creators, and uh, I don't know. I'm just loving every minute of life at the moment. And congratulations on the new album, mate. I, I'm not. Uh... But it is interesting how we are so free, and yet there are some people who still want to, dic- you know, mind police who even more than ever want to dictate our thought. Isn't that incredibly? Um, uh, it, it, it's it's just so indicative of the human condition, you know. Need to be free, and yet the need to be control as well. It's just scary, isn't it? Well, I think you know the the great opportunity that the internet is providing us with is the ability as a people to talk about how we want to live and start to provide some sort of organised uh, resistance to you know the, the small group of people that like to control the way that things are and uh, like to dictate. Yeah, I keep no, t- it is. It is the, it's 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 the new bastion of free thought. I love it for that because I was always a rural. I never ever wanted to do everything that everybody wanted me to do. I never ever wanted to be in that perfect box, being a, a, a describable person. I always wanted to have some mystique. And I love the internet because it allows us to to, to spread individual thought. Yeah, but I, I keep I keep telling people that you know we can use the internet just for uh, gaming and porn, which is fine. I got no problem with either of those. Or we can yeah. we can deliberately use it as a, a force for good. And but I think we need, like any tool, we need to make a conscious decision about how we're going to use it, and we need to get our asses yeah. into gear and uh, you know apply it with conscious direction. Look, I mean, whether you whether you agree with it or not, and I'm not sure I do, but I mean, you know, it's one thing that I've I've found very interesting. Um, was, you know, in, in, in almost political thought as well. Look, when the G8 summit and all those things were around and all those protesters who take to the street, you know, they all rally themselves on the internet. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that it's used in so many different ways, you know. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it is, and it, but it is a mass culture as well. It does breed communication. I mean, I think the blog is as a new means of communication. And, you know, look, I'm the guy who had the long, the long distance love song, When I Need You. Um, and, um, uh, you know, When I Need You was all about, you know, being in love with someone, but not being in the same city at the same time. You know, that could be the ultimate internet song, really, because the blog is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually, I've fallen in love with Facebook. Um, and I'm on there in disguise, as it were. But I, I love the fact that I can talk to my friends from miles and miles and miles away instantly and we've got a great communication for sending each other pictures and things like that you know i mean i love that that's great isn't it that's fantastic and do you, do you have a blog a public blog yeah but you'll never find it <laughs> so it, not something that you would use to talk to your uh, to your fans with 
Yeah, I do. I do. I do. I do. And also, oh, right. you know, I'm really using the I'm really using the website at the minute um, because you know we've, we've got yeah we have messages coming there and I'm answering all the questions. So if anybody has any questions they want to ask me, they can use that as a conduit. And um, every other week, um, you know, I'm answering the points. People are asking about you know obscure things like you know. Um, how did this song come about, or how did you meet so-and-so, or, um, you know, uh, is that a so-and-so instrument playing on? You know, and I'll answer all those questions as much as I know anyway, as much as I can remember. <laughs> so leosayer.com if people want to keep an eye on... Uh, yeah, www.leosayer.com, exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks again, mate. It's been great. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs> all right, mate. Really good talking to you. Now stay in touch, eh? Got a cute way of talking You've got the better of me Just snap your fingers and I'm walking Like a dog hanging on your lead I'm in a spin, you know Shaking on a string, you know My special thanks to Leo Sayer for coming on the show today. And if you enjoyed this podcast, check out the rest of the podcasts at thepodcastnetwork.com. Sign up to our email list. You can find the subscription details at tpn.thepodcastnetwork.com and you'll get an email once a week with all of the podcasts that have come out from across TPN in that previous seven days. Thanks for listening. This is Cameron Riley. Do something with your life, folks.